President Trump scoring a hat trick of terrible news from the courts today. The lead starts right now. Bad news for President Trump all around today, from his tax returns to hopes for his border wall to the scandal that could find him impeached. President Trump once called her bad news on his now infamous Ukraine call. Today, a career diplomat delivering a blistering attack on the president's conduct in front of the very people who could vote to impeach him. And breaking just minutes ago, Turkey nearly bombing U.S. special forces, apparently by accident, after President Trump opened the door for that country to go into Syria. So why does it seem like President Trump is always bending over backwards to do Turkey's bidding? This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news, a series of devastating news today for the Trump administration, including losing three court rulings. President Trump lost his appeal to stop a House subpoena to obtain his tax returns. A federal judge in Texas ruled that President Trump's national emergency declaration to build a border wall is unlawful. And yet another federal judge today blocked the Trump administration rule that makes it more difficult for immigrants who rely on public assistance to obtain legal status. Now, amid all these rulings, a key witness in the impeachment inquiry came forward. The former ambassador to Ukraine pointing the finger directly at the president today as she testified to members of Congress behind closed doors. According to a copy of her opening statement obtained by the New York Times and Washington Post, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch said that President Trump himself pushed for her to be removed from her role as ambassador because of, quote, unfounded and false claims by people with clearly questionable motives, unquote, which seems a reference to President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who has admitted that he brought information about Yovanovitch to President Trump. And the Wall Street Journal recently reported that Giuliani had complained Yovanovitch, quote, was undermining him abroad and obstructing efforts to persuade Kiev, that's Ukraine's capital, to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. This afternoon, the Democratic House chairman leading the impeachment inquiry accused the White House of trying to block this key witness from testifying. She's a woman who can shed light on this question. Did President Trump actually fire a U.S. ambassador because she was getting in the way of his lawyer's attempts to get dirt on his political opponents? CNN's Alex Marquardt leads off our coverage today from Washington. Defying the Trump administration, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch went before lawmakers today after the State Department tried to block her testimony. She was appearing in response to a subpoena by Democratic leadership and leveled a stunning allegation, telling lawmakers, according to The New York Times, she'd been removed from her post by President Trump because of unfounded and false claims by people with clearly questionable motives referring to efforts by the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. I do not know Mr. Giuliani's motives for attacking me, Yovanovitch wrote in her statement, adding, but individuals who have been named in the press as contacts of Mr. Giuliani may well have believed that their personal financial ambitions were stymied by our anti-corruption policy in Ukraine. The former ambassador talking about Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two of Giuliani's associates who were indicted yesterday for trying to use political contributions in order to get her fired. Yovanovitch was known for her anti-corruption work. The old oligarch system is still clinging to life and corruption is its life support. 
She also said in her opening statement, the harm will come when bad actors in countries beyond Ukraine see how easy it is to use fiction and innuendo to manipulate our system. It is incredibly alarming. Uh, that the Secretary of State is not standing by our career people. Incredibly alarming that she points out that private citizens, in this case Mr. Giuliani and others, were having a shadow diplomacy into Ukraine. As the impeachment inquiry deepens, Yovanovitch is the latest in a string of key interviews. On Monday, former White House Russia advisor Fiona Hill is set to testify, someone who had a pivotal role in the president's dealings with Ukraine but who a source tells CNN will testify she was unaware of some aspects of the Ukraine scandal. Also next week, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who was blocked by the White House last week from being deposed, he's expected to now show up under subpoena. Well, President Trump has not only honored me with the job of being the U.S. ambassador to the EU, but he's also given me other special assignments, including Ukraine. He was a top aide on Ukraine. Text messages show he was well aware of the president's desire for an investigation into Joe Biden and his son. Of vital interest to the committees is Ambassador Bill Taylor, another career diplomat currently running the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. He was clearly uncomfortable with the pressure being put on Ukraine by President Trump. Texting Sondland, are we now saying that security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? Sondland responded, call me. Taylor has been asked to testify. It's unclear when that may happen or if the administration will try to block his testimony as well. There are now three ambassadors at the center of this impeachment inquiry who either are or may be defying the orders of their bosses at the State Department and the White House to testify to Congress. Now, Jake, Ambassador Yovanovitch is a 33-year veteran of the U.S. Foreign Service. She said today that if the State Department's leaders don't stand up for it, the country's interest may be irreparably harmed. Jake. All right, Alex, thanks so much. I want to go straight to CNN's Pamela Brown now. She's live for us at the White House. And Pamela, three significant losses today in the courts for the Trump administration. How has the White House reacted? Well, we're about to hear from President Trump as he departs the White House. But the, the president is certainly ending this week, Jake, with a barrage of more negative headlines on top of what we just learned. The former Ukrainian ambassador saying the president directly campaigned for her to be fired for political purses. In a devastating blow, the president has also lost three high-profile federal court cases today. Jake, earlier today, he lost the court battle over turning over several years of his tax returns to Congress. His lawyers are saying that they are weighing an appeal to the uh, to this decision by the D.C. Appeals Court. And then he lost two court battles on his signature issue, immigration. A federal judge in Texas ruled the president's national emergency declaration to build a border wall is unlawful and appears to uh, poise to block the use of those funds, Jake. And in a third defeat, a federal judge today blocked a Trump administration rule that makes it more difficult for immigrants who rely on public assistance to obtain legal status. So really the trifecta there of these court rulings uh, dealing a big blow to the president. Uh, As you'll recall, Jake, that controversial initiative uh, that I just mentioned was announced back in August. And uh, the president's top advisor, Stephen Miller, was asked about all of this today. He 
fired back at the court rulings, calling them disgusting federal injunctions that impedes democracy. And as we have seen in the past, Jake, the president is not afraid uh, to go after federal judges. So we'll have to wait and see what he says in just moments. Now, a silver lining uh, here at the White House for this White House today is this announcement that the president just made that a preliminary trade deal with China um, has been reached. He, the president just met with the Chinese vice premier in the Oval Office, but there are no details as of yet as to what that deal entails. You can imagine the president will want to focus on that rather than all of these court losses today. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. We have some more breaking news in our world lead. We are just learning that U.S. special forces in Syria were dangerously close to being hit by Turkish artillery, according to one U.S. official. Turkish forces moved into Syria after President Trump days ago said he would pull U.S. service members out of that region. I want to bring in CNN's Barbara Starrs at the Pentagon for us. Barbara, what are you learning? Well, Jake, this is exactly what U.S. senior military commanders did not want to see. U.S. forces in northern Syria near Kobani apparently came dangerously close to Turkish artillery fire. The, the artillery fire coming out of Turkey, landing several hundred meters away from that U.S. special forces position. Initial reports indicate no U.S. troops were hurt in this event, but it's not what the U.S. wants. It's one of the reasons they've been so concerned about keeping U.S. troops in this region where the Turkish advance is happening into Syria. Right now, we also know that the U.S. military has emergency evacuation plans to pull some or all of the 1,000 troops in Syria out of that country if the fighting accelerates and the view becomes it is simply too dangerous for them to stay there. Jake? All right. One wonders why the president made this Decision about pulling the U.S. service members from that region. Barbara Starr, thank you so much. Right now, the former ambassador to Ukraine is still testifying on Capitol Hill. Up next, someone who worked closely with Ambassador Yovanovitch breaks down her testimony. Then, thousands of people forced from their homes, major highways shut down, and this raging wildfire in the United States could get even worse. We're going to go live on the ground. Stay with us. And we're back with the politics lead and a key witness, former Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, right now testifying on Capitol Hill after she was subpoenaed. Three House Democratic chairmen saying this afternoon that subpoena was issued after the White House and State Department directed Ivanovich not to appear before Congress. Ivanovich was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, but she was removed from her position in May over what she called today unfounded and false claims. She said that she was told by the Deputy Secretary of State that there had been a, quote, concerted campaign against me and that the department had been under pressure from the president to remove me since the summer of 2018, unquote. Let's discuss. Uh, Jen, you were the former spokeswoman uh, for the State Department during the Obama years. Uh, You know Ambassador Yovanovitch. Tell us about her. Is she a partisan Democrat? Is she not professional? No, you know, I worked alongside her for two and a half years. She was in a senior role in the European Bureau when I was there. Um, I was a visitor as a political appointee. Most people in the State Department are foreign service officers, civil servants. They've served, as she noted in her testimony, often many Republican and Democratic presidents. I would have had no idea what political affiliation, I still don't know what political affiliation Ambassador Yovanovitch uh, had or has today. 
You know, I will say about her that she is somebody who took pride in uh, being a representative of the national interests and the United States interests overseas. She had a number of hardship posts, which she mentioned in her testimony as well, places that many people don't want to serve that are difficult because they're authoritarian governments. Uh, she went and delivered tough talking points or tough messages when that needed to happen. She's somebody who respects the process, respected the process and the institution and sort of when it was working, what that could result in, uh, mm -hmm. which is things being negotiated and discussed and worked through at a working level before they come to the Secretary of State or, or even levels right below that. That's how it's supposed to work. You know, I think the other thing for people to understand or I think it's important for people to understand is that when you're a, a foreign service officer, at least in my experience being there for a couple of years, you're not looking for the limelight. You know, you're not looking for a moment where you can testify or be a public face or have your face on CNN. This is something that they all do reluctantly because they feel it's important and it's an important part of their public service. So my bet is this was very difficult for her to put together and deliver today, but she felt it was important not just for her own reputation, but for the reputation of the institution and to kind of be a voice for all of the frustration and anger uh, that is felt in that institution and has for has been for the last several years. This all reminds me, Tulu, of uh, a week or two ago when the inspector general for the State Department went to Capitol Hill and presented what was described as a bunch of conspiracy theories about people uh, that are perceived to be President Trump's enemies, the Bidens, Ambassador Yovanovitch and, and others. Uh, and she said today that they're just a bunch of lies that were coming from, she insinuated, I guess, that they were coming from people like Rudy Giuliani. I, I have no idea uh, where they were coming from, but, but insinuated from President Trump's uh, partners and allies uh, in, that were, you know, spreading this stuff. And uh, that that's the reason she was ousted, because somebody had given President Trump all these lies about her. Yeah, and she warned that that is going to be an, a green light for other actors who want to use misinformation to make the U.S. government take specific actions. In this case, she's saying that misinformation was spread about her by the president's allies, and that caused her to be uh, removed from her post. And that's a decision that was uh, very welcome, not only by the president's personal lawyer, but also by these two indicted uh, affiliates that he had that uh, wanted her out as well. So the fact that we have potential criminal actors who are spreading misinformation that are getting the president to take action, uh, that's something that she warned could be dangerous to the U.S. democracy. It could uh, allow folks like Russia and other adversaries to try to use that same playbook. Uh, and she was warning the senators, and a lot of these senators agree that, you know, we need to have one voice for the U.S. government. We can't have people playing uh, State Department actor when they're not actually officials within the State Department. So she put that in her in her opening statement. And I think she's speaking mm -hmm. to those Republican senators who actually agree with her that they don't like the fact that Rudy Giuliani is playing uh, the, 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 the role of shadow State Department actor when he doesn't really have an official position in the government. And she's speaking to those Republican senators who have those concerns as well. Initially, Mary Catherine, we heard that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo was, was annoyed by what Rudy Giuliani was doing. But lately, he's been saying things along the lines of, I think he told uh, Judy Woodruff at PBS, that it's not so unusual for private citizens to be working with the government to do things like that. Um, it, it sounds certainly disruptive. Yeah, I mean, unclear where Pompeo is on this. Maybe we'll get more clarification about it. But I, I'm struck over and over again by the fact that Trump puts someone like this ambassador, in a former ambassador, in a situation where she must speak for herself, right? There is a situation in which she serves at the pleasure of the president. He recalls her. He puts someone else in that. And she wants to stay quiet because she believes in the mission and, and, and the situation. But if indeed there were stories about her and she feels like that's why action was taken against her and it was inappropriate, then she has to get out there and speak 
for herself. And so he's always putting people in a position, them knowing that they're not going to be necessarily backed up by the institution or by him personally, to have these conversations openly. Especially when she's subpoenaed yes. by the House. Uh, Shan, if you were uh, behind closed doors, if you were one of the House Democratic chairman today, what would you be asking her? Well, I'll be asking her what kind of pressure that she was subjected to and what she understands the support was for her. Because it's so critical that the career people who are nonpartisan get the support of the government structure. And if she didn't feel supported, I think that we should look into exactly how she wasn't supported. And, and the Washington Post reports that one person familiar with the sequence of events after the Trump-Ukraine call in July said, quote, when people were listening to this in real time, there were significant concerns about what was going on. Alarm bells were kind of ringing. People were trying to figure out what to do, how to get a grasp on the situation. Alarm bells were ringing. Look, I, I think reading this story, one of the most interesting components to me uh, was the role of the, um, the uh, his name is John Eisenberg, the, the lawyer on the national security team, who has been there from the beginning. People went to him and expressed these alarm bells, expressed concerns about what they heard. He also was there way back uh, when there were other concerning things happening with Flynn, et cetera. I want to hear more about him and more, hear more about what he knows and what his role is in here. Uh, it's not surprising to me that people were concerned when they read the call. That wasn't that interesting to me. What was interesting to me was his role in being the person that people went to. And he, he sat on it. And that's clearly or the, it, the story indicates that's why people went to the CIA. All right, everyone uh, stick around. We have a lot more to talk about uh, in the middle of this impeachment inquiry. We have learned that President Trump is trying to make some controversial moves with his National Security Council. The changes he reportedly wants to make. That's next. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead sources telling CNN that President Trump's handpicked national security advisor is slashing the number of career officials on the National Security Council who help to advise the president. These are the types of people who have come forward with concerns about President Trump's actions, career people. Uh, also, we're told that the national security advisor plans to replace some of these individuals with political appointees who, by definition, will be regarded as having more loyalty to President Trump. CNN national security reporter Kylie Atwood joins me now live. And Kylie, what role did President Trump play, if any, in this staff shakeup? Well, President Trump himself was the one who directed his new national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, to make this shakeup. Now, we should note that Robert O'Brien has only been on the job for about two months now. So this is a pretty big change for him to be making very early on in his tenure as the national security advisor. And what we know from our reporting is that the slash is legitimate. It is big. He wants to cut it by about 50 percent. He wants to make the number of folks at the National Security Council close to 120 by early next year. And how they're going to do that is they're going to essentially cut down on the folks who are rotating into the National Security Council from the other agencies and departments within the U.S. government. Now, what that means is that there are going to be fewer folks who are the policy folks who work for every administration, and there is going to be a greater percentage of political appointees that are in the National Security Council. And I also spoke with someone at the NSC right now who predicted that President Trump himself is going to get frustrated by this move because there will be fewer people that he can turn to when he wants quick answers on foreign policy questions that he has. And that really is the role of the National Security Council. All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you uh, so much. Uh, Let's talk about this. Jen, you worked at the White House. Uh, How concerning is this to you, if at all? I mean, I have heard previous complaints, even in the Obama administration, that there had been bloat among the National Security Council. Yeah, the National Security Council is large. It's probably been too large in, in years past, in recent years past. 
But clearly the most important piece, or most concerning piece here, I should say, is the switching in political appointees for civil servants and people who have served presidents of both parties. To me, this is a clear reaction to the fact that the whistleblower was somebody who was rotated in from another, or I would guess, or that's the you know assumption, from another agency who was uh, there, who wasn't a loyalist to Donald Trump, who was a loyalist to the United States, a loyalist to the institutions, and he wants to crack down on that. What's concerning about that is that that becomes a group of people who want to deliver on solely the president's agenda. And what we've seen from the past few months is that agenda is pushing, getting political dirt on his opponents, letting his personal lawyer out there uh, kind of, uh, you know, represent the United States. That's not traditional national security interest. That's not traditionally what the NSC does. I think the, the comment that was shared at the end about how somebody said Trump will be frustrated. To me, that's quite generous to his level of interest and intellectual curiosity in national security. I don't think he's shown that. Um, he's probably going to be happy not to have people he sees as deep state or, um, you know, people who aren't on the same page as his agenda. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my, my libertarian tendencies lead me to think that all government entities think that they should be exactly as large as they are, if not bigger, and cannot possibly operate being smaller. Um, I am skeptical of that, and I think it probably can operate smaller and do a good job. Um, O'Brien, I have some faith in, as his, uh, his record shows, and he also points out this will not be an immediate change, it would come through attrition, and that he also puts more faith, probably than Trump, in the actual agencies from which they're gathering information right. through this personnel, and that he would rely more heavily on them as institutions as opposed to having people in-house. This is like a very large D.C. think tank level of personnel right now, and as many people know, that has comes with a lot of... Uh, Bureaucracy. I want to I want to uh, play for you some sound from President Trump last night railing against uh, the Ukraine scandal investigators and the impeachment probe. Uh, take a listen. The Democrats brazen attempt to overthrow our government will produce a backlash at the ballot box, the likes of which they have never, ever seen before in the history of this country. Brazen attempt to overthrow our government. And he also says a, a backlash at the ballot box, which we've never seen before. Do they really think that the impeachment is going to help them? Well, they're making that argument. They're making much more of a political argument than a legal argument. That was the president's uh, written remarks. He wasn't going off the cuff there. And it actually echoed some of the commentary we saw from the White House counsel in this eight-page letter that he sent over to Congress earlier in the week. They basically are accusing the Democrats of trying to overturn the 2016 election, trying to meddle in the 2020 election. They think that making that argument works with the base and it, based on the reaction in the crowd, it does work with the president's base. The question is whether or not it works with the broader public. And we have seen a number of polls that have come out over the last few days that have shown that a growing number of Americans do think that the president should be impeached. They do think that his call with Ukraine was wrong or at least inappropriate. And they're not necessarily winning that messaging battle. But the fact that the president is focusing on his base shows that he has already chosen his electoral strategy for 2020, which is to drill down on his hardest supporters, turn out, get them to turn out and rally as much as possible, present himself as a victim and hope that that will turn out a large number of voters on his behalf. And Shannon, I just want to read one more part of the testimony from a former Ukrainian U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Yovanovitch, today. Quote, today we see the State Department attacked and hollowed out from within. State Department leadership with Congress needs to take action now to defend this great institution and its thousands of loyal and effective employees. We need to rebuild diplomacy as the first resort to advance America's interests and the front line of America's defense. I fear that not doing so will harm our nation's interest, perhaps irreparably. There is this concern 
uh, that uh, the president, President Trump, is using government for his own ends and not for the best interests of American values. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's uh, really blatantly engaging in that right now. And it's classic abuse of power. And it sounds like a dictator's move. I mean, when he wants to use the government apparatus to further his own ends, that's very impeachable. I think we see reflections going on in the different agencies, State Department, and frankly, to respectfully disagree with any faith um, in O'Brien's move there, it concerns me that they're cutting that staff down at this time for this president. That's what worries me about it. And, for example, some of their historical antecedents seem just silly. I mean, talking about the Bay of Pigs, Carter's staff was leaner. Those aren't really great historical examples of success in terms of the uh, intelligence. Jimmy Carter's foreign policy. All right, everyone stick around. We just learned that Turkey almost hit U.S. special forces in Syria this just hours after the White House re-upped the threat to sanction Turkey, something that we've frankly heard before. But President Trump doesn't seem able to say no to Turkey's president. Why not? Stay with us. Back with breaking news in our world lead today, an official telling CNN that Turkey's military offensive in northern Syria hit very close to a U.S. special operations unit. Early reports indicate no U.S. injuries and no indication that the incident was deliberate. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in the thick of it right now in northern Syria. And Clarissa, this Turkish military operation might be causing new activity by ISIS? Well, that's right, Jake. Uh, earlier today, there have been a couple of incidents that have really raised people's concerns. The first took place in a uh, family camp. Uh, sorry, I should say a camp for ISIS family prisoners. Uh, it's called Al Hall. There's about 50,000 of them living there, family members of ISIS, uh, many of them radicalized. And it appears uh, that dozens of them essentially tried to stage some kind of a prison break, tried to escape, trying to capitalize on the kind of chaos and confusion that is reigning at this time in northern Syria. Kurdish security forces were able to put a stop to that, but nonetheless, it's certainly raising some eyebrows. And then here in the very city that I am standing in, Jake, in Kamishli, near the Turkish border, a car bomb earlier today, four people killed, quite a significant blast. ISIS has come out and claimed responsibility for that bombing. We should say we can't confirm that. ISIS is opportunistic. They often try to claim credit for these types of attacks, even if they are not the actual perpetrators. But all of this really going to show you, Jake, that when you have some kind of a power vacuum or a security vacuum, you create a space for a group like ISIS to reform, coalesce and strike again, Jake. And Clarissa, you spoke with U.S. special operators in Syria. What are they saying about the Turkish operation? So we went into a U.S. Special Forces base earlier. None of the uh, Special Forces operatives obviously would speak to us on camera. But it's a very uncomfortable dynamic for them, Jake, because their base is actually being guarded by Kurdish forces, the same Kurdish forces who were fighting on the front lines for them uh, against ISIS. And now there's this incredible tension with Kurdish forces who were privately telling us in this same base that they felt that the U.S. had sold them out and that they were... Uh, not going to help them against to fight back this Turkish offensive. And these guys have been living together as brothers for a long time. So it's incredibly tense and awkward dynamic for our special forces in, in Syria, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in northern Syria, please stay safe. The White House today threatened Turkey with new sanctions if Turkey crosses a line regarding civilian casualties or ISIS escapees from prisons in northern Syria. But the Secretary of the Treasury refused to define what the red line is, and he acknowledged that the sanctions were not going to be actually imposed necessarily. Watch. 
I want to emphasize at this point, we are not activating the sanctions. These are very powerful sanctions. We hope we don't have to use them, but uh, we can shut down the Turkish economy if we need to. Turkey's president has wanted to target Kurdish forces in Syria for years. So why now did President Trump move U.S. special forces out of the way and allow the Turkish military operation to happen? This all comes within the odd context of President Trump often doing what Turkish President Erdogan wants him to do, even at the expense of U.S. interests. Despite President Trump's vague threat to Turkey on Thursday, we are going to possibly do something very, very tough with respect to sanctions and other financial things. His order to withdraw U.S. service members from the northern part of Syria on the eve of Turkey's assault on America's longtime Kurdish allies is in fact just the latest in a number of decisions where the Trump administration has seemed to bend over backwards to give Turkey's President Erdogan what he wants. It's not a good pattern. It's, uh, it's a pattern of, of appeasement. The Trump administration's ties to Turkey began even before the 2016 election, when former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, at the time an advisor to the Trump campaign, was doing secret lobbying work on behalf of the Turkish government. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Flynn met with Turkish government officials at the time about getting one of Erdogan's enemies, a Turkish cleric living in Pennsylvania in exile, Fatullah Gulen, forcibly removed to Turkey. Erdogan has accused Gulen of masterminding an attempted coup in 2016, though Gulen denies any involvement in the coup and he was never forcibly removed from the U.S. General Flynn is a wonderful man. Flynn subsequently admitted to breaking the law by making false statements on federal lobbying disclosures about his work for Turkey. Then there's Rudy Giuliani's representation of Reza Zarab, a Turkish businessman with ties to top Turkish officials, indicted by the U.S. for helping Iran to evade billions of dollars in U.S. sanctions. In an Oval Office meeting with Giuliani and Trump, then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was pressed to drop a criminal case against Zarab who reportedly had an office in Trump Tower, Istanbul. Tillerson said no. Even more curious, the Trump administration, so proud of withdrawing from the Iran deal and imposing new sanctions, has not yet fined the bank involved in the Zarab case, the state-owned Hulk Bank. Why not? The Trump administration did not respond to CNN's request for comment. Then there's the matter of Turkey purchasing the Russian S-400 missile defense system, a system that Pentagon officials have said would pose an intelligence risk to the U.S. since Turkey also purchased U.S. F-35 fighter jets. According to a 2017 law, Turkey's purchase of these Russian weapons is supposed to trigger congressionally mandated sanctions against Turkey. But Trump has not pulled that trigger. Why not? The Trump administration told us today, quote, we continue to urge Turkey to reconsider the receipt of the S-400. There's a deliberative process ongoing on the issue of sanctions. There could be more sanctions to follow, but frankly, what we'd really like is the S-400 not to become operational. In fact, after the Pentagon insisted that the White House cancel Turkey's purchase of the F-35 jet, President Trump sounded more upset about the law than Turkey violating it. I've had a good relationship with President Erdogan. Because of the fact he bought a Russian missile, we're not allowed to sell him billions of dollars worth of aircraft. It's not a fair situation. It sends a terrible message to uh, the Turkish regime that they can continue to test American red lines and get away with it. Coming up next, one answer getting a lot of attention from a Democratic presidential candidate. Stay with us. 
In our 2020 lead today, a moment getting a lot of attention for Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren at CNN's town hall last night focused on LGBTQ issues. And a supporter approaches you and says, Senator, I am old fashioned and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one man and one woman. What is your response? Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. <laughs> and I'm going to say, then just marry one woman. <laughs> I'm cool with that. Assuming you can find one. A uh, lot of applause for that in the room. Right. Uh, what was your response? Yeah, look, it's a moment that's sort of built to go viral for her on Twitter, but Twitter is not the American electorate. So um, I would have suggested, had I been advising her, which I'm not, um, a note of respect for the person's religious beliefs while also noting you're welcome to do as you wish and these people can do as they wish. That's how we coexist, right? Like, I think that would be maybe a slightly better tone because if you take that to believers in Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, and Wisconsin where you have to win their hearts, uh, maybe a nod to their sincere religious beliefs would be helpful. I would also note that on the other side, I think something built to go viral the bad way is Beto O'Rourke's uh, idea that he's going to punish churches that don't uh, perform same-sex marriages. And that Take is away also their tax-exempt right. status. That yeah. is also something that does not play in Peoria. Are you, are you concerned as a Democrat who wants a Democrat to win? Are you concerned about what you heard last night in, in those two examples? You know, one, as we all know, they're all playing to the Democratic base right now because they have to win the nomination before they worry about any of those questions. Um, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is betting in a general election. She is going to win the hearts and minds of people who are against gay marriage. I think that is a pretty safe bet on her part. The majority of the public is for it. Uh, on Beto O'Rourke's part, part, you know, I think he's making some headway a little bit by saying things that he clearly believes that are a little uh, out there for the Democratic electorate. I don't think he's going to be the nominee. Uh, others may be asked that. Um, it's probably not in line with Peoria, but they're betting that the majority of the public is uh, that they need to win over the general election is, is where they are. Another interesting moment from last night uh, from uh, former Vice President Joe Biden talking about how far discussions on LGBTQ issues have come. Remember, Anderson, back 15, 20 years ago, we talked about this in, in, in San Francisco. It was all about, well, you know, gay, gay, gay bathhouses. And every, it's all about round-the-clock sex. It's all, come on, man. Well, um, that's part of the reason that Vice President Biden is facing some challenges, especially among younger voters, people who think that he's not sort of attuned to the current moment, that comments that were okay maybe 20 or 15 years ago uh, are no, lo no longer okay in the political sphere, especially among the Democratic base. Uh, he seems to still be polling well. He still seems to be doing okay, uh, especially among older voters. But those types of gaffes, if you, call, if you want to call them that, or misstatements will make it harder for him to build the broad coalition that you need in a, in a Democratic primary to not only, uh, you know, win in the general, but also be able to make it through a Democratic primary where the base, specifically younger voters and people um, who may be offended by that kind of language, will, will need to be catered to. And I'm not sure that did he's Did someone right give yet. him a list of things not to say in this <laughs> forum? And he just like read because top Don't of the list would be gay, gay bathhouses bath and around the clock sex. Those would be the two things. Does it concern you at all? It seems like another uh, uh, record player moment kind of. To me. Yeah, look, there have been a number of moments where even those of us who have affection for Vice President Biden think, what on earth is happening? right now. Um, but there still continues to be affection from the American public, including within the Democratic primary still voters leaves. for him. And, and, in and in Peoria. And part of his appeal is right. that he says things that your uncle says and people feel comfortable with him and it's a return to normalcy. So 
Yes, that was a weird comment. I'm not sure it's going to impact him in the, in the long run. Record players and bathhouses. Be sure to tune in not, uh, Tuesday night for the CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate. There'll be 12 candidates on stage in Ohio. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. Coming up, thousands of people evacuated, several homes destroyed, at least three major highways have been closed. We're going to go live to the wildfire in California that might get much worse. Stay with us. In our national lead, 100,000 Californians have been told to evacuate. 23,000 homes are threatened. And the Saddle Ridge fire in California is right now just 13% contained. It's tearing through neighborhoods in northern Los Angeles. So far, one person has died due to a cardiac arrest. CNN's Nick Watt joins me now live reporting on this. Nick, are we hearing any good news from officials? Well, Jake, I don't mean this to sound callous, but the best news I've heard all day is that so far only around 25 homes have been destroyed. And I say that because when we arrived here at 2.30 this morning and watched this house burn, I was convinced the devastation would be much greater. Then we heard that the whole of this town, Porter Ranch, was under mandatory evacuation. Now, part of the reason that we didn't see the devastation is authorities knew this was coming. The conditions for a wildfire have been perfect all week. These offshore dry centers. Anna winds, low humidity, dry brush. They knew this was going to happen. So they pre-positioned equipment and personnel to deal with this. But as you mentioned, Jake, this is far from over. Only 13% contained around 1,000 firefighters still on those lines. The line's burning right now up in unpopulated areas, but that can change at any time. And the red flag warnings that were supposed to be lifted 6 p.m. Friday, those have been extended 6 p.m. Saturday. And there's another very sobering thought here. Last year, we had the worst, the deadliest fire in California history. And that did not ignite, Jake, until the second week in November. That's terrifying. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. My guests will include Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. You can follow me on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read your tweets. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I will see you Sunday morning. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.